Radio Mano Papachango. Mexico City, Mexico. Uh, this is a pretty cool place. I've heard a lot of bad things about this city over the years. I haven't been here for, I don't know, 20, 25 years or something. Um, I came here when I was traveling in Mexico back in the 80s. I don't remember a damn thing about it. But um, we've had a great time here. It's been great weather, really nice, warm, sunny days, chilly nights. It's a strange place. I mean, there are more people in Mexico City than in Canada and Australia combined, I think. Uh, like 25 million people or something in this city. So that's pretty intense. <clears throat> um, but it's, it's, a, it's muffled. I don't know how else to say it. it. It feels muffled here. It's quiet. It's strange. I don't know if it's because it's a high altitude and maybe the sound doesn't travel as well in the thinner air or, or if it's cultural and people just don't honk their horns very much. And I, I don't know what it is, but it seems like a muffled, quiet city, which is sort of the opposite of what I was expecting. We spent the last few days in various uh, neighborhoods wandering around. We've seen the, the Museum of Anthropology and um, Frida Kahlo's house and uh, the Diego Rivera, one of the Diego Rivera um, museums and the Palacio de Bellas Artes and, uh, bueno, various cosas aquí en México que nos gusta mucho. And uh, I'm going to, as soon as I finish this, I'm going to wander off and watch the Super Bowl with uh, Red Pill Junkie, <clears throat> which is his on online name. Never met the man, but uh, he and I have corresponded over the years. He's been a... Uh, uh, I don't want to say a fan necessarily, but he's listened to the podcast f from the beginning, as far as I can tell. And uh, he's he's always got very interesting things to say when he leaves comments. So he and I are going to get together and watch the Super Bowl uh, like a couple of um, anthropologists. So this episode, before I get into my my uh, ranting, I, I don't want to forget to tell you that this episode features Lodi, who is a man I met when I took my car in to get the brakes checked in Venice, I looked on Yelp uh, in the area where we were staying in an Airbnb, and uh, um, I saw some very positive reviews of this guy, Lodi, who I thought was German because he specializes in German cars, and Lodi seems like a German name. Anyway, he's this uh, Pakistani man. Uh, I think he said he was in his 70s. And uh, turns out my car didn't need brakes. But while he and I were in his office chatting, I saw a photograph uh, of him standing next to a sign that says, Welcome to the Arctic Circle. And he's uh, in a motorcycle uh, jacket standing next to a big BMW. And I said to him, Is that you? And he said, Yeah. I said, What's, when was that? He said, Oh, yeah, uh, my 50th birthday, I decided to ride to Alaska and to the Arctic Circle. And so that, that's me. 
And I said, what? That's crazy. You wrote from L.A. to to the Arctic Circle, to northern Alaska, not just to Fairbanks, which is as far north as I went. But he took off north from Fairbanks through the Brooks Range to Nome. And he said, yeah. He said, um, I said, have you ever heard of a podcast? Do you know what podcasts are? He said, no. I said, well, it's kind of like a radio show, but on the Internet. Would you be willing to share the story? you know, share your story with, um, with people. I do this podcast. And he said, well, yeah, although I probably wouldn't talk about that trip so much. Maybe I would talk more about when I rode from London to Islamabad, (laughs) London to Islamabad. If you can't picture that trip, Google map it or look on a globe or something. That is a trip across a good piece of the earth. And when he did it, there was there weren't even roads in, in a lot of the sections. He just rode through the desert alone on a motorcycle with a toothbrush and a change of clothes and uh, slept wherever he was when he got tired, pretty much. But anyway, I don't want to tell you the story. He'll tell you the story. It's an amazing story. He's a hell of a man. He's a polymath. He's brilliant. Um, he, you know, the story ranges from him living in Winston Churchill's house when he was a kid to the, the motorcycle trip to Alaska, the, the London, Pakistan thing. And then, you know, in the course of conversation, it turns out he's, um, also extremely well versed in 19th century romantic British literature. So fascinating man. And uh, one of my favorite types of guests, someone who's not accustomed to speaking publicly, someone who's not accustomed to telling their story, um, but who very generously uh, agrees to allow us into the privacy of his extraordinary life. So that's Lodi. That's this episode. I hope you love it. Um, Now for my little rant of the week, I promised some people that I would talk about an experience I just had a few days ago in Tijuana where I was uh, lucky enough to be invited to try 5-MeO-DMT for the first time. Now you may have heard of DMT, also known as the spirit molecule. Um, I've never tried it. I've done ayahuasca, which contains DMT. So I guess I've had some experience with that, um, but I'd never uh, done something like this. And and DMT and 5-MeO-DMT are slightly different uh, from what I understand. Straight up DMT, the sort of thing that Joe Rogan talks about a lot and Duncan has, has talked about. Uh, is sort of a blast off into the universe, cosmic insanity, craziness kind of holy shit stuff. Whereas this, um, from what I've been told, the 5-MeO provokes more of a unity, um, God kind of uh, experience, like a transcendental spiritual awakening kind of experience. Um, and I have to tell you starting out that I'm hesitant to talk about this. Uh, and honestly, the only reason I am talking about it is that guests like Lodi and, and many other guests who've been on this program have shared themselves so openly that I kind of feel like for me to hold out, uh, is unfair on some level or, or, yeah, it's just there's something 
that doesn't feel right about that. On the other hand, uh, there's a lot that doesn't feel right about talking about my own experiences in ways that invade the privacy of others. And that's become a big conundrum in my life since starting this podcast and the book came out and I'm getting interviewed and, you know, sort of dealing with the public, uh, dealing with the public, you know, dealing with being a public person to some extent is strange because, you know, you, you talk about your own experiences, but your own experiences often involve other people and they never agreed to be in the public eye. They never agreed to have their, your interpretation of their story, um, you know, public knowledge. And so anyone who writes or has any sort of public profile has to deal with this question, you know, to what extent are these experiences mine, and I'm free to do with them what I will, versus something that is sort of jointly owned, and that I really don't have the right to do with them what I will, uh, without the consent of the other people involved. So that's a conundrum. And, and there's really no way of getting around it. Um, other than to try to uh, tell your story in a way that maintains the privacy of other people. So that's what I'm trying to do. This is all a long preamble to say that the experience that I had was um, started out like what I've heard described. It started out with just uh, sort of an absolute loss of any ego, meaning any sense of identity, that it's me having this experience. It was just experience. It was just kind of like um, not in this dimension, like in a, not even like in a dream, just like in a blast off into the stars, geometry, amazement kind of feeling. Um, you're lying back, uh, eyes closed, just just amazed. That lasted for I don't know how long, whether it's a minute or a couple of minutes. Um, and then what happened was that I felt myself overwhelmed by sadness. And this is where the privacy comes in. There are people in my life right now and maybe this is a function of age as much as anything else, but there are people in my life who are very close to me who are suffering a lot. And, you know, we, we have all sorts of psychological mechanisms to protect ourselves from the suffering of people we love. You know, we say, oh, they're on their own path and they've got their own karma and, you know, I can't uh, I can't help them if I let myself get um, too absorbed in their suffering and so on and so forth. And, and I'm not saying that those things aren't true, um, but none of them eliminates the basic truth, which is that suffering is a cloud phenomenon. Suffering is a field and when you're around someone who's in pain, you are in pain too. This is something Voodoo and I talked about. I remember back when we did a podcast together and we talked about it just as friends. He's a tattoo artist. 
And he talked about how just being around people who were suffering every day has a psychic toll on him. Um, You know, doctors will tell you the same thing. Uh, You know, the suicide rates for certain medical specializations is very high. Dentists are around people who are suffering a lot. And, uh, And it gets to you. And when you love people, they're not just patients, they're not just casual um, acquaintances, then I think it gets to you even more. And I've got sort of a tough guy complex, I guess, on some level, or I, I don't know, but, um, but I felt overwhelmed by sadness uh, and grief and suffering and... Um, and I just basically spent the rest of the session, which was probably another, you know, seven, eight minutes, whatever, just um, just crying like I haven't cried maybe ever in my life. I would say crying like a baby, but I don't know if babies cry from sadness. I know they cry when they shit themselves and they're hungry and they're pissed off and whatever. But, you know, I've never spent much time around babies, obviously. And uh, I just felt sad. I just felt just really sad. And this is an important thing here for those of you who are thinking about doing psychic exploration using hallucinogens of any kind. Because a lot of people would look at this and say, wow, that was a really bad experience. And that's as bad as it gets. You know, you're basically like, you know, you have no defenses. Your 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 mental psychological structure is destroyed and you're just laid out vulnerable and wide open. And you spent all that time in vulnerability suffering and, and just, you know, all the horrible things that you are that you're trying to control in your life were suddenly out of control and wow what a terrible time you had but the way i look at it is i that wasn't a terrible thing it, it wasn't a bad trip it was a difficult trip it was a sad trip but that's real sadness and that sadness exists in my life and it exists in everyone's life and at this moment and going into it honestly i suspected this might happen and i even spoke with the the person who was facilitating this and i said listen you know there's a lot of sadness in my life and and i i don't know if this is such a great idea um at this point and uh and then i thought well what the hell I'll go for it why not you know because truth is more important than comfort. That's the way I feel about it. And if it's true, it is what it is. And better to face it and experience it and acknowledge it than to run away from it. So, you know, I, I sometimes I feel like people who listen to this podcast think that because I'm 30 years older than, than some of you, or I've traveled a lot, or I've, you know, whatever, I've written a book or whatever it is that I have some sort of answer that I can give you to some of the deepest questions in life. And, and uh, to tell you the truth, I feel like a lot of what we, 
mistake for wisdom or maybe what we call wisdom isn't having answered the big questions. It's having abandoned them in some ways. I mean, I had this cat, Nisa, in Barcelona who used to try to dig uh, at a certain place in the kitchen in our apartment and it's tiled floor. So she would dig and dig and dig. And I, I'd look at her and say, Nisa, you idiot, you're digging. I, I, first of all, I don't know what she's digging for or why it was that particular spot, but there was some compulsion she had to keep digging there. And she's just spinning away, digging uh, on this tile floor. And I kind of look at that and I think that's the way I was in my 20s in, in some ways, you know, like I was searching. I was working so hard trying to find the answer. And as I got older, I think what happened was I gradually came to accept that for many of those big questions, there is no answer. There is no final destination that your travels will lead you to where everything is wonderful and makes sense and there's no pain and there's no suffering and there's no ugliness and everything is just beautiful and happy and wonderful. There is no place like that. The word utopia literally means no such place exists. And so a big part of wisdom experience is coming to a point where you say, this isn't working. This isn't getting me closer. And so you give up. And there's a great wisdom in knowing when to give up. And American society doesn't acknowledge that. American society tells you never give up. Only losers give up, right? Donald Trump says. But the fact is that only losers never give up. Because no matter how long that cat digs in that spot in the kitchen, she is never going to get anywhere through that tile. <laughs> it ain't going to happen. And some walls that we're banging our head against are not walls. They're the side of a mountain. And you're never going to get through it. All you're going to do is fuck up your head. So... Sometimes the best thing to do is just to give up. And knowing when is wisdom, as far as I can tell. Uh, that's about it. I don't want to talk about anything else because um, that's enough, I think, for one podcast. We are in Mexico City. This will go out tomorrow, which is Monday. And when you hear this, if you're uh, someone who listens as soon as it comes out, We'll be on an airplane flying over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and the next time you hear from me, assuming everything goes off without a hitch, uh, I'll be in Thailand. I'll play you in to and out of this interview with uh, two pieces of music by Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan, who is a Pakistani, was a Pakistani musician, just died a few years ago. You'll find a lot of his music online. He collaborated with uh, Peter Gabriel, among others. Anyway, this song is called Fault Lines. And at the end of our conversation, I'll play you out with a tune called, uh, I think it's called Arabic, but I'm not sure that might just be what I called it in my uh, iTunes library. In any event, it's a massive attack remix of Nusrat Fatah Ali Khan's music, an amazing voice. 
Thanks for listening. So cool to be in touch with all of you. And I will catch up with you from Chiang Mai next week.
am here with Lodi in, uh, in an auto garage on a Sunday morning, so it's a little quieter than normal in here. This, as I said to you uh, yesterday, this is sort of a familiar environment for me. Yes, you were telling me about the your... The smells and... Yeah. yeah. It's funny how, how things like that get ingrained. I, I worked in three different auto garages uh, in high school, and then my first year in college when I went back home for the summer, I, they took me back. I was terrible, though. I was... I was terrible. I destroyed three or four cars. You're not mechanically inclined? No, I guess I'm not. No, I, I find it interesting. You're more artistically inclined. I think so, so, yeah. <laughs> but they liked having me around, I think, just for the laughs. And But I, I dropped one car off a lift because I hadn't aligned. It was a truck, and I hadn't aligned the, the feet that go up vertically. And when it got to the top of the lift, there's that little shake. Yeah. And that shake was enough to... To topple it. <coughs> and it oh cracked the transmission case. Wow. And then I uh, destroyed two cars uh, using the wrecker. I towed one back, and the guy had left it in neutral, right. not in park, so the steering wasn't locked. Okay. I lifted it up from the back, and when I pulled onto the highway, yeah. it swung around into oncoming traffic. Wow. Lucky I didn't kill anyone with that one. And what was the other one? Oh, I went and uh, yeah, I lifted the the car up from the front, and I hadn't, I didn't realize that it. When I lifted it up the back, the front bumper went over a curb, and I pulled the curb out, <laughs> and I was driving down, and I couldn't get the wrecker out of first gear, and I thought, well, that's weird, <laughs> and it was like really. I thought, well, and something finally, when you ganked it out, the curb <laughs> came out with it. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> the curb dropped out. Yeah. But uh, they never fired me. They just laughed. They just thought I was hilarious. But I was just changing oil and tires and, you know, the low-level stuff. So how long have you been working with cars? started with a degree in mechanical engineering mm. with an emphasis on internal combustion engines. Oh, really? Diesel engines and turbines. And did you do this study in Pakistan? In, in Pakistan. Mm. There was a Ford Polytechnic Institute right outside Islamabad. I was there for four years. And then at the same time, simultaneously, my mother, God bless her soul, who was an educationist herself, she guided me to take a graduate examination majoring in English literature which I somehow made, so I wound up with two degrees, actually. A degree in English and a degree in mechanical engineering. Mm. So after the degree in mechanical engineering, uh, since I was more directed towards mechanical power technology, internal combustion engines, etc., at that time, the Volkswagen subsidiary in Pakistan was a company known as Modern Motors. They were offering an apprenticeship program, so they took me on. Mm. So I served an apprenticeship there for three years. And then I came to the United States wanting to do a, a master's in mechanical engineering over here. This was in 1971. But at that time, 
a lot of engineers were out of jobs, especially in uh, the aerospace industry in which I wanted to specialize. Really? Yes. I would have thought that was the heyday of the aerospace No, it industry. wasn't. Was it because the war was winding down? Th because the war was winding uh, down, a lot of people were coming back looking for work. and uh, yeah. okay. So I just happened to go to uh, a Volkswagen dealership in Inglewood and I just asked for the owner. The receptionist was a very attractive lady wearing olive fatigues and uh, and an olive green baseball cap. I mean, she could have very well belonged to an inner circle of Fidel Castro's because <laughs> she was Cuban. Oh, really? So she asked me who I was and I said, he doesn't know me, but I've just arrived here from Pakistan and I want to talk to him. She said, let me call him. His name is Richard Cronman. And if he has the time, he'll come out to meet you. So she started looking behind me and I turned around and I saw this very debonair looking elderly gentleman, salt and pepper, was over six feet tall, wearing a beautiful uh, hound's tooth tweed suit, three piece. And he said, I'm Richard. I said, I'm Khalid Lodi and everybody calls me Lodi. So he said, I, I hear you've just arrived from Pakistan. I said, yes. I served my apprenticeship with a dealership in Pakistan and I just wanted to talk to you about your operation over here. He said, well, why don't you come on into my office? And he told the ladies, hold all my calls, just take messages. He said, uh, I have 15 minutes for you because I have a four o'clock appointment that I need to be at. It was 2.30 in the afternoon in March of 1972, I remember. So that was the time when Pakistan had lost the war against India and lost East Pakistan, which had become Bangladesh. And Mr. Cronman was quite interested in the politics of that area, so the conversation dragged on. And every 15 minutes, he'd pick up the phone and tell the secretary, call so-and-so, tell him that I have to cancel my appointment and I'll reschedule it or whatever. I was with him till 5 o'clock that afternoon. Wow. So. He said, I don't know what your intentions are. If you want to go to school, there is nothing like education, but there are a lot of engineers out there looking for jobs these mm. days. So if you ever want to do something with Volkswagen in the United States, he picked up the phone, and I still remember to this day, he said, I'm calling uh, Volkswagen Pacific, which was the Western distributor for Volkswagen at that time. It later on became Volkswagen of America. Let me speak to Joe Fitzhugh. Joe Fitzhugh was the regional service training director. He had been a U-boat captain hmm. during the Second World War. I mean, a, a submarine captain yeah. in the Second World War. And he was involved in the liberation of France and had married a very beautiful French lady over there. And then when he had retired from the Navy, he started teaching service training. So he was managing about two dozen different instructors all the way from personal relations, human relations, into mechanical aspects of cars, accounting, etc. So Mr. Fitz, uh, Mr. Cronman says, 
Joe, I have this young gentleman here from Pakistan who has an apprenticeship from Volkswagen there. I'm going to send him over to you, give him whatever he needs and charge it to my account. <laughs> <laughs> so why? Why? Why did he... He recognized something in you right away, apparently. Yes. He said, go and spend time with him, and when you're done, come and see me. Do you think it was his interest in the politics, as you say? Or? No, I think he was interested in hiring me. Yeah. Because I was on a student's visa at that time, and I legally couldn't go to work. Right. But uh, after I finished with Joe Fitzhugh, which was like about six months of various seminars, etc., I went there to thank him, and he said, so what's your plan now? I said, my plan is to continue with my education. He said, oh, so you don't want to work. I said, what type of work do you have for me? He said, well, I was thinking of bringing you as a trainee manager in the shop, and you are going to work with my service manager. His name is Harry Wunstel. He's from Munich, and his father had the first Volkswagen dealerships in Germany. Wow. But he's a sort of a renegade and a black cat, in the family, so he rebelled and came to the United States, joined the U.S. Air Force, served in it, <laughs> got out of it, and now in, he's in World War Two. No, in uh, uh, in the Vietnam oh, War. Okay, in okay, the Vietnam yeah. War. And Harry still, he's the longest, oldest friend that I have known here. <clears throat> we are still very much in contact with each other, and uh, so I started working with Harry. Harry was also a, a very elegant, debonair-looking German guy. You couldn't say he was German at all because he had this thick black hair, eyebrows and eyes, and he had a very, very healthy tan complexion, which I found out was due to the fact that he was a very athletic person. Mm. He's about 76 now, and if you look at him, you you will say he's not a year over 50. Hmm. When he came to the United States, he tells me his weight was 142 pounds and he's still at 140 pounds. <laughs> That's hard in America. That, that is hard in America. <laughs> it's hard anywhere, but yes. harder in America. And, uh, yeah. His secret of that success is that he leaves his warm-up and uh, running shoes next to his bed the first thing that he does when he wakes up is jump into them and goes and runs two miles. Yeah. Then he comes back to the house, goes into the gym, where he rows a boat for 30 minutes, he's on a staircase for 30 minutes, and then he's on the treadmill for 30 minutes. And he does this religiously. Oh, my God. That sounds horrible. And, uh, and he doesn't drink beer, I'll bet. He drinks beer. He, he drinks, does? He loves scotch. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, him and me, we finished off that bottle of scotch here in this office because I, I, I used to keep it for him. Uh, now I have to invite him and buy some more scotch. <laughs> well, it's good. At least this has reminded you of that. Right. Yeah. And uh, he is a competition uh, glider pilot. He has competed all over the world. He's, he has some good records. And he is a very close friend of Baron Hilton, of the Hilton Hotels. Mm. Baron Hilton owns a one-and-a-half-million-acre ranch, which is called the Flying Y Ranch, on the border of uh, California, Nevada, up above uh, Bridgeport, off of the 395. And Baron Hilton constantly has Harry over to the ranch over there, 
because Harry loves the place. It's got all different types of planes that you can fly and mm. uh, three or four different chefs so you can order what you want to eat and a big, huge bar. Have you ever been in a glider? Oh, yes. I have a glider pilot's license. Oh, do you? Yes, from Pakistan. You're full of surprises. I'm get, I, I have to keep uh, <laughs> digging here because I never would have noticed that. So, oh, all right, I'm going to interrupt you if you don't mind. Okay. Tell me about the gliding. I've never been in a glider. I've it's, paraglided. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's just like being in a plane without an engine. Right. It's silent except it for the wind. It's very silent, and you feel like a bird. And you you ride the the updrafts, the, the thermals, thermals, the yeah. thermals. Yes. It's very interesting. I was quite young at that time. I would think I think I was about 15 or 16 years old when I had when I took that glider test and I failed it the first couple of times and the third time the test pilot who had come from the Pakistan Civil Aviation to check me out he said if you don't do it this time I'm never going to pass you. <laughs> I well, said, what, what was the problem? Well the problem was coordination a little bit of nervousness you uh, know okay. going up first time with somebody you don't know. So it wasn't the theory no. it was the practical right? Yes and I still remember to this this day he was a retired flight lieutenant from the Pakistan Air Force and his first name was Z and his last name was Rasool. Mm. So he scared me. <laughs> I said, okay, well, the only way you're going to be able to do that is if I don't kill you if you go up this time, you know. But I got my confidence back and made a landing and it was. All right. And we are back after uh, being interrupted by a man looking for body work. Right. Um, so we were talking about, you were talking about you getting your, your uh, glider license. Yes, in Pakistan. In Pakistan. So can we just talk about your childhood a little? Because you surprised me saying your first language is English. Yes. I would have thought it well, would be, what is it, Farsi? Is that the? No, that's Ur -Urdu, Iran. Urdu, Urdu, Urdu or Punjabi. Right. Well, my father was an officer in the Royal Indian Army. But at the time of partition in 1947, because he was a Muslim, he opted to go to Pakistan. Oh my. <coughs> he had a master's degree in English literature mm. from the University of Punjab. And that is where he met my mother, who was doing her master's in mathematics. Right. And is uh, your family Sikh? No. No. We are Muslims. But, uh, Sunni, right, Sunni Muslims. Okay. We but from the Punjab. We are from the Punjab. Right. And you were displaced by the war. By the yeah, partition. The partition. That was such... People don't know about that right. in the West. People don't think about it. And it was uh, incredible. When, when I was born, my father at that time was a captain. And because of his English language skills, he was pretty sought after for administration jobs. Mm. So he was given the post of the adjutant of the Pathan Regimental Center in the Frontier Province. Mm. The commandant of that regimental center was a Colonel Stone. And he had a wife and he had a daughter whose name was Caroline. The whole family was very close to my mother because she spoke fluent English. And my mother started teaching me how to read the alphabet by looking at the Pakistan Times and telling me this one line with an I on it is a P, these two I's is a B, and that is how she started me off. And then she took me to the local convent over there to put me in a preschool, 
and I remember that one of the sisters there, she sort of interviewed me and she had me read something and uh, she turned around and she told my mother, why are you bringing him to us? You are doing so good with him. Mm. Just keep on teaching him at home. Mm. He's not ready yet. Bring him back when he's five years old. So, so you were homeschooled. Homeschooled in the beginning and I, I started off like in the third grade and uh, English has always been the primary language. Whenever anything important had to be discussed, it was always done in English. In your family? In the family. Yeah. And my father was a very interesting gentleman. He later on retired as a lieutenant colonel and uh, station commander of one of the northern forts in Pakistan in a small town called Malakand and he was commanding a battalion known as the 9th Frontier Force Wilds Battalion. Now incidentally Fort Malakand and the 9th Frontier Force Wilds Battalion is associated with Winston Churchill. The Wilds Battalion was the first regiment that Winston Churchill was liaisoned with to write about the frontier campaigns before the British invasion of Afghanistan. Mm, which was when? Or uh, after the British the invasion. 20s, Some, something like that. Because yeah, he was in South Africa. Right. And, yeah, he was. It was in the early 20th century. Yeah. yeah. We lived in the house in which Sir Winston Churchill had lived. Oh, really? Right. So and you were up, you, your family was my, up at the fort. Well, my father was a lieutenant colonel. Right and he was commanding this regiment and I remember that Queen Elizabeth II she visited the battalion on the day when it was Winston Churchill's birthday and the Pakistan communication network Pakistan tele telecommunication industries had set up a microwave link between Malakand and London because she had lunch with the officers at the mess and my father and then she made a phone call and she said Winnie I just had lunch with the officers of your regiment and and what a delightful lot they are it is amazing that I can look from the front of the officers mess and I can look down in the valley all the way up to the Indus River and of course um, the Duke was with her and uh, it was a very interesting afternoon. <laughs> How old were you? I was about 14 at that time, I uh -huh. think. And your family wasn't particularly religious? They were religious, but uh, not orthodox. Mm. Right. On my, on my grandparents' side, both the grandfathers were educationists. My paternal grandfather did his tripos in mathematics from the University of Oxford in 1906. Wow. My mother's father... Mater what is tripos? It's, it's, it's three degrees. Oh, okay. Three degrees of different branches of mathematics. And he went to Oxford in 1906? 1906. From Pakistan? From India. From that, India? From India at that time. Which is extremely rare. Right. To be an Indian guy going right. to Oxford. What, did his family have money or was it a scholarship? Scholarship. 
He must have been a, a genius. He, he was a very well-known, very well-known educationist and yeah. a reformist. There was a very famous, sorry to interrupt you, there was a very famous Indian mathematician who went to Oxford around that time. Rabindranath Tagore. Ra Tagore, exactly, yes. right, yes. yeah. Have yeah. you read his Gitanjali? I, I've read excerpts of things yeah, from him over beautiful. the years. Yeah. And his combination of essays that he delivered in Oxford is in a small little Oxford uh, edition mm. called The Religion of Man. It just blows your mind away. Interesting. You know, it is like yeah. moving from the the real to the surreal into the transcendental and then imagining all this. Yeah. He was a self-taught, yes. just sort of a, a genius who just saw things. Yeah, like, so, like a Sufiistic, yeah. fakir type of man. Exactly, like a mystic, but, yes, but he mystic. was discovering things and yes. no one could figure out right. how he saw Astronomy yeah. and literature and history and yeah. philosophy. and On the level with Einstein or Michelangelo. Right. Or, yeah, amazing. Anyway, sorry. And, so and so my, your grandfather was in Oxford. That, right. That's and then after he got his, uh, his degree, his master's degree in Oxford, he applied at the University of Heidelberg for a PhD in theology. Right. And he did that in 1922. <laughs> did he have the scar on his cheek? No. You know about that? No. Heidelberg was, there was a tradition at that university. The men would, uh, because they were you know, gentlemen and right. all upper class and you know, uh, fencing, and so they would uh, have a slight cut on their cheek and they, the scar no. would sort of show everyone that they had gone to Heidelberg. No, but I remember that uh, when he came back to serve in uh, <coughs> the Indian Civil Service Education Department, that is where he met my mother's father who had just joined the Indian Civil Service Education Department and both of them started being stationed at the same places. My paternal grandfather as a headmaster and my maternal grandfather as an assistant headmaster. So the family started socializing with each other, and my father right. fell in love with my mother. Oh, really? It was yes. a love marriage? It was a love marriage. Oh. And, uh, and in the University of Punjab, sometimes when we would be driving around, my father would stop in front of this one building. He said, you know that apartment up there? Can you see it? And I, we would say yes. And he would say, but your mama and I, we used to live in that apartment when we were going to the university. So, I mean, they were living together at that time. Unmarried? Unmarried. <sighs> Isn't that like risking being stoned to well, death or it, something? It was or whatever it was, but, but they survived. <laughs> uh, that's, okay, so when I said your, your family wasn't religious and you said they weren't orthodox, to me that I, well, I, my father did, you know, he, he didn't say his prayers five times a day, but right. he, he had a very, very good pronunciation of Arabic, and right. he was requested to recite the Quran on several occasions. But he was living with a woman he wasn't married to. Right. Okay. Now, I, <coughs> I think that, and I am, I am far from any sort of an expert on, on Islam, but I, as I told you yesterday, my yeah. wife was raised in right. partly Islamic tradition and um, my, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but Islam uh, has been, until relatively recently, and, and also this, uh, in the media, it's, it's, uh, 
it has been a much more flexible, tolerant oh God, yes. religion. Flexible, tolerant, peaceful. Right. These terrorists have just hijacked the religion right. for their own purpose and and totally defamed it. And right. So we look at it. we look at something like your parents from our perspective now, and we say, oh my God, they were risking their lives. Right. But actually, maybe in that historical moment, it wasn't that big a deal. It would have been if it had come out more in the open, but yeah. I think a lot of people were doing that. You know, right. So. Because we later on met uh, my my mother's classmates, whom we visited, and they were living with a man. Oh, okay. So you know. Yeah. So it's like yeah. Iran now uh, is is a sort of f uh, formally very strict Islam tradition, but becoming but emancipated. Actually, yeah, yes. and and the people are very young. Right. The average age in Iran is twenty eight or something. And my mother taught mathematics at the university level until she was eighty two. Right. So your parents were both intellectuals. They were from a sophisticated family. You know, a very interesting thing that I want to mention about my father is that we always used to have general knowledge conversations at dinner every night. Mm. Today, we are going to talk about the countries in Asia. Really? Can you name all the countries in Asia? Okay. Tomorrow, find out what are the capitals of these countries I'm going to ask you. Then. The following day, it would be, okay, who is the ruler of Iran? What is his name? What is his title? What type of money do they use there? Right. Then what type of government and politics do they have in that country? So it would just go on and on and on right. and on. And my father had a library in which he had probably about 3,000 books, most of them on history. Mm. He had uh, William and Ariel Durant's Story of Civilization. I read that book. Yeah, in, uh, in, series in eight volumes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he also had a collection of uh, Arnold Toynbee's A Study in History. Right. And he always used to refer to these books. Did you have uh, siblings? I have a sister younger to me. Her name is Caroline, because Colonel Stone's daughter's name was Caroline, and my father loved her. So when they visited my mother, when my sister was born, the colonel asked him, what have you named your daughter? And he said, sir, with your permission, I'm going to call her Caroline. Uh. So, and that is how she did, a, she did a PhD in applied physics, my sister. Wow. And went to work for Pakistan Television Corporation on the education side. Because uh -huh. she was selected by the Pakistan Atomic Energy Commission and the Upper Atmosphere Space Research Organization, which he said it was so boring, I didn't want to work there. <laughs> she uh, inherited my paternal grandfather's 1937 Mercedes diesel that she still has in the house to this day. Really? That she uses. It is all original. It has, it has never been taken apart and repaired. And I think the grandson of the original driver is now serving her. And he's the one who looks after that car. And she lives in Pakistan. She lives in Pakistan. Wow. She's retired now. She has two children, a son and a daughter, and both of them are based in Dubai. Mm. So what does she think about the... the who, who was the Pakistani nuclear scientist and developed the bomb, the atomic bomb? And you're, you're talking about uh, this new guy later, lately. Was she, it Khan? She, was it Khan? Yes. Yeah. She, she has never been involved in politics. She is not 
very respectful of the United States of America mm. because of the various exploitation that has occurred in Pakistan by the Americans and even to this day is still happening. She it says, oh, they just like to meddle in our affairs. They yeah. have no business being here, you know. Well, and, uh, there's a lot of people who could say that. We certainly then do. My maternal grandfather, Ali, both of their last names were Ali, uh, became a provincial inspector of schools and he was uh, he was posted in the state of Hyderabad. And in the state of Hyderabad, in the capital of Bahawalpur, the Maharaja of Bahawalpur became friends with him and presented him with a 1926 Rolls-Royce Silver Cloud, which is still there in the family. As a gift. As a gift. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. People think of India as being a poor country. Right. But the wealth in that oh, yes. country is just astonishing. Well, my maternal grandfather came from a land-owning family. They had like about 3,000 acres. Mm. But when he retired in 1937 from the civil service, he went back to the village. No running water, no toilets, mm. no electricity, hand pumps. Yeah. And... Uh, I mean, people were still using uh, cow patties for heating up the fireplaces yeah. in the houses and stuff like that. But a very, very astute religious person, but liberal. Mm. I mean, he allowed his daughters to go to the university and yeah. and get their, you know, master's degrees. And he had three daughters. All of them got master's degrees. And the two younger daughters, after my mother, they were also educationists and the youngest sibling was a son who joined the Royal Indian Air Force and became a fighter pilot mm. and Kay. he was the one who encouraged me to take the gliding lessons because ah. at that time he was managing the the flying club in Lahore ah, so you got and he said you want to come and learn how to fly I said, yes. So he pointed me towards the glider. I said, what is this? It doesn't even have an engine. <laughs> he said, we didn't talk about power flying. You're going to learn how to glide first. Yeah. You know, so. And did you ever get to fly airplanes? Yes, there and here in the United States, but I never kept it up. I always hated theory. Yeah. And I hated reading about the weather and imagining what it was going to be like, et cetera, mm. et cetera. So I, I never really tried to get my license, but I think I could still probably get into one one of the small single engines and give it a whirl. Yeah, my uncle has uh, uh, amphibious planes. He's uh, and he lives in Florida. Yes, you told me. Uh, you, your dad and him were doing the business of ferrying them over to Alaska and selling them. Uh, yeah, it's his friend and my uncle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was fun. I, it's a missed opportunity. I never went on those trips with Whoa. him. But hey, life is life is full of missed opportunities. So let's jump ahead. You, you. Okay. So the first experience with the motorcycle was with my father, right, in 1952, uh -huh. where he had an old English BSA, and he would put me on the gas tank in front of him <laughs> and take me around for a ride. I was yeah, true basically Asian three, style. three or four years old at that time, and uh, he had been selected by the Pakistan Army for the highest possible qualification in the military, which is the War and Army Staff College in the city of Quetta, the capital of Balochistan. 
It had been built there by the British and it was run by the British military officers right up to the mid-50s, even mm -hmm. after the partition of India and Pakistan. And my father was the only captain over there amongst uh, a class strength of about 800 officers from all over the world. And he, he qualified with very high distinction. So he got some quick promotions after that. He was sent to Germany to learn the language, to work as a translator for the Pakistan Army. And then later on, he was sent as a military attache to the diplomatic mission, Pakistani mission in Germany. And your family went with him? No. Or no, he just went? We could have gone with him, but he didn't take us with him. Uh -huh. I think he probably had too many fraulings shacked away on the side or something, but my intuition tells me that now I look in, re in retrospect. Right, right. But. Well, so he was, uh, he was away and this was in your teenage years? Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and I made a total mess of my mother, just fighting all the conventions and, you know, started drinking beer when I was 14 years old. So what, what was it with you? You, you're, you seem like you've always been a bit of a rebel. Yes, always. I mean, the, I should tell people, I, I'll record a, an intro to this separately, but I can say right now, the reason that you and I started talking was I brought my car in to have the brakes checked, and while you and I were chatting, I saw a photo of you standing next to a motorcycle and a sign that said, Welcome to the Arctic Circle. Right. I'll post that photo on my website. And we started chatting about that you had seen a, what was it, a John Wayne movie? Yes. Do you remember the name in, of the in movie? In 1957 or 59, when I was going to the grammar school in the city of Quetta, uh -huh. where my father did his staff course, uh, it we always went to English medium schools, both uh, the sisters and myself. And we were educated in the grammar school by Roman Catholic monks from Holland. They were Dutchmen. That happened with my, my wife as well. So a Muslim kid... I mean, kid I, I, have, I have scars on my knuckles to, to prove... From the nuns. <laughs> for the punishments, you know. What a strange And uh, one of the assignments was to see a movie once a month and, and write about it. Mm. And I remember going and seeing this movie called North to Alaska with John Wayne, Capucine, Stuart Granger and Fabian. I still remember the names of the actors. Your memories and, are crazy. And there was another guy in this movie who was a villain. The actor's name was Ernie Kovacs. Ernie Kovacs, I, sure. I remember all those names. <laughs> and I mean, this movie, it just blew me away with the scenes of Alaska and, and Nome and yeah. and Skagway and, you know, the, the schooner going up there and these people making a cabin and trying to look for gold and and you had seen the Himalayas you'd been to northern Pakistan yes I had spent some time in northern Pakistan so but, but this was much more beautiful you think so because it was in cinemascope and technicolor <laughs> <laughs> more beautiful than reality more beautiful than reality <laughs> because I've never been to Pakistan but for I've, I've been to Nepal and Kashmir I've seen the Himalayas and I, I find it hard to imagine anything more beautiful that it must just be stunning up there, and Peshawar. It, it and was, yeah. No, especially the northern areas of Kagan, mm. Hunza. The Hunza province. Yeah. Hindu Kush, yeah. Nanga Parbat, and uh, the districts of Gilgit, 
and uh, Deer and Chitral, mm. amazing places. Yeah. After I did my high school, my father asked me, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to become a professor of English. He said, if you are going to have education at my expense, you're either going to become a doctor or an engineer. Mm. I said, okay, then that settles that. I'm not doing anything. So what, were you unhappy as a teenager? No, I was not unhappy with teenager, but I thought I didn't have enough freedom because mm -hmm. my ideas were always restricted by my parents. Oh, no, you have to wait till you're a certain age to do this or do that. And whenever I asked them for a, for a favor, like I wanted a shotgun or I wanted a bicycle, they were always conditions. Okay, you have to show us 100% in mathematics. Mm -hmm. you, you have to show us at least a 95% all across or whatever. And I said, what is this? I mean, I ask you for something and you keep on laying these conditions on me. I'm just going to go do it my way, you know. Yeah. And, okay, but when I look at you from, from outside, I see your parents being very liberal as far as Pakistani yes, culture. Yes, society is concerned, yes. Yeah. And so your friends, their parents were probably far more restrictive of them than your parents right. were of you. right. So they were giving you, from their perspective, they were giving, giving you so much freedom, freedom and you, you were demanding more. You know what? I remember in 1959, the first date that I went out on was with an American girl, girl named Jacqueline. She <laughs> was the daughter of Mr. John Strong and their wife, Chaperondas, and we went to see Elvis Presley's movie, King Creole. <laughs> and we held hands in that movie. Elvis Presley, that's that's pushing limits right yes, there, going yeah. to see Elvis Presley. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and we, what, what was she doing in Pakistan? Her father was working for the USAID. Oh, uh, okay. Huge yeah. family from Ohio, 12 kids. <laughs> and uh, Where is she now? I don't know. I have no idea. And the sons were friends of mine, and we went around brewing hell all over town, you know. <laughs> Sometimes Mr. Strong had to come and get us out of police stations because the police had gotten a hold of her. Oh. And, uh, That's not good. Yeah. No, and then in the city of Lahore, my father built his first house, and the neighbor next door was renting it out to the USAID. And that there, I remember, was a gentleman whose name was Lloyd Trocknow. He was from Chicago. He was a USAID administration officer, and he saw me walking around on the on the boundary wall, and I had this book in my hand, which was said, Fundamentals of English. So he said, you speak English? I said, some. He said, can I see what you're reading? So I gave it to him, and he said, you know English pretty well. I said, yes, I can speak some English. He says, would you like to come over and visit with me? So I went over and talked to him, and he showed me he contributed to the National Geographic and the Time magazine mm. and Life and Post and Saturday Evenings Post and all that. So he introduced me to all those magazines. Mm -hmm. And he introduced me to Jacqueline's mother and Mr. Strong. And that is how I got to know her. When you say he contributed, you mean as a writer? Or he he had the magazines in he, the house? He, he had subscribed to ah, them and he okay. was getting them through the U.S. mail. Right. And I remember he had one very important day when he was absolutely excited. 
and he came over and he knocked on the door and he told my mother, he said, could I meet your, could I see your son please? I am your neighbor and my mother said, yes, I know you and she shook hands with him. And he said, I have to take you over, I need to show you something. And it was a 1956 or 1957 Chevy Bel Air, um, chocolate brown with beige, mm. two-tone. It was a beautiful car and he was in love with it and he had been waiting for it forever. He'd had it shipped to Pakistan. He had, had it shipped to Pakistan. Wow. And he had all these American beautiful blonde women visiting him with four Thunderbirds and Dodge Darts <laughs> and whatnot. And <laughs> yeah, those were the days when America was uh, the dreamland. Right, yeah. absolutely. I mean, if, if there were two pens one of them said made in Pakistan and the other one said made in USA and the one in made in USA was an extreme third quality. It was supposed to be the best because it was made in USA. Right. Nobody questioned that. Yeah, do you, uh, I, I hear from my wife a lot who grew up as a... So I fell in love with America and I always yeah. wanted to come to the United right. States. So when, when I wanted to come to the United States, my father laid conditions on me, you know, your test scores were not very good when mm. you graduated, blah, 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 this, that, and whatnot. So I, he <coughs> said, why don't you join the Army? What is wrong with that? I've served 37 years, you know, you can put in some. So I went in there and I intentionally failed. Mm. And uh, The entrance examination. The entrance yeah. examination, the selection board that is known as the Inter-Services Selection Board, IESSB. Right. And then my maternal grandfather was visiting. He was staying with us, with my grandmother, and he said, what's the matter with you? Why are you so upset and so pensive? I said, well, this is what happened, you know. I said, I'm, here I am, I got my visas and everything, and I'm ready to go. And he said, so what does the colonel say about it? He always referred to my father as a colonel. I said, well, he doesn't want me to go. He's not encouraging at all. In fact, he's discouraging me. So I remember I was sitting right next to him. He reached out with his hand and he put his hand on top of mine and he said, don't worry about it, we'll take care of it. And two weeks later, I was on a plane coming to the United States of America. No kidding. Yep. So did he convince your father or he just uh, worked back channels? He worked the back channels and he convinced my father. Oh. Yes. You had a lot of adults who, I mean, when you were talking about your neighbor, I was thinking how these days that would be suspicious. Yes, Mr. Prochnow was probably in his 30s. Yeah. A short gentleman with blonde curly hair, but he was very friendly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, he came to me that Christmas morning and he had a small little gift for me. And I was so excited to open it and, and he asked me, he said, are you going to open it now? I said, no, I'm going to open it when my daddy gets home from the office. He said, okay, I want you to let me know how you feel. And it was a beautiful plastic case with a Parker ballpoint pen in it mm. called the Parker T. Jotter, I still remember. It was a black pen, very nice. And uh, that just reinforced, knowing Mr. Proc now reinforced my intention of coming to the United States even more. Mm. So here I are. Yeah. <laughs> it's all Mr. Prognow's fault. Yeah. So uh, your your interest. What, what I was going to say earlier is that it sounds like, and I, I've had this in my life as well. Adults who just sort of pick you out of a crowd and say, "I'm going to help that kid. That that guy. There's something about that guy." And 
Yeah, you were talking you about the, me the mechanic shops you were talking about, you know. Yeah, well, yeah. even that, yeah. It's just like, uh, we'll give him a job. He's a he's a complete idiot, but uh, whatever. He's well, in, uh, in retrospect, my situation was that I was very good with literature and social studies and histories, but very bad in mathematics, which is important for engineering. Hmm. And anything that had to do with mathematics, I was just totally against it. Really? Yep. That's surprising because the little I've heard, your mind works in a very organized way. You remember names and dates and you're very uh, sort of, uh, there's a calculation in going on in your memory. Do you, do you think it's because you felt pressure because there was all this mathematical genius in your family? Probably because of that too. Starting all the way from my my paternal grandfather to my maternal grandfather, who had six degrees in Oriental languages: Urdu, Hindi, Punjabi, Sanskrit, Marathi, and along with that. He used to, he was very, very uh, fluent in both Arabic and Persian. Mm. I mean, he would be <coughs> delivering a sermon at a Friday prayers and he would start with Urdu and get into Arabic and then start quoting Persian and poetry and whatnot and mm. people would just lose him. Yeah. But you would never see that there was a break anywhere, you know. Right, right. And on the other side, my maternal grandfather, he spoke fluent French. Uh, German, English, and I think he told me that he read he read uh, Dante's Inferno in Latin. Right. <laughs> and the <laughs> only thing to live up to. the only thing that was saved from the property in India, which they left behind and they migrated to Pakistan, was the library. Mm. It was a truckload of books, about ten thousand of them. Mm. and uh, some of them are in, in my sister's house and the other they got distributed amongst other grandchildren and you told me the other day you rode a motorcycle from from where from London was from it? London to Islamabad when was that in 1957 and how did 67 that 67 and how did that come about just wanted to do it by road. I had done it in a car. I just wanted to do it on a motorcycle. You'd done it in a car? Yes. Uh, how? Bef going the other way? Or no, like sa same way. <laughs> I, was, I was in England, uh -huh. and there was a, a group of people and boys, and they were leaving in this old Mercedes diesel going to Pakistan. And I said, can I come along with you? And they said, sure. So I went with them. You just jumped in the car and drove to Pakistan? Drove to Pakistan with them. I didn't drive. I was driven the other guys and uh, while I was on this road I kept on imagining I said how would it be on a motorcycle one right. of these days I'm going to do it how long a trip is that well when we did it in a car it took us about four weeks It's 5,280 miles but when I did it on the motorcycle it took me six weeks so I'm thinking the route you go you cross over on a boat to France yes and then you come down into uh, Switzerland, Italy, what was at that time Yugoslavia, right. then Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, 
and then down into Pakistan. Right. When I came in the car, we went from Tehran down south to Zahedan and crossed over into the the province of Balochistan in Pakistan and then up into the Punjab. Mm. But when I was on the motorcycle, I crossed over from Tabriz in Turkey, uh, Arzirum to Tabriz. I did not go to Tehran. I went up north along the Caspian mm. through the towns of Babel and Sabzawar and then I dropped down into Herat, uh, Mash sorry, Mashhad and crossed over from Mashhad into Herat in Afghanistan, down into Kandahar, the north again up into Kabul and then across the Khyber Pass into Pakistan. Were you alone? On yes. That? Six weeks? Six weeks. And were you camping out or where were you sleeping? Wherever I could. A lot of time people just took me into their house and they gave yeah. me a place to sleep for the night. Oh, bad. What kind of motorcycle were you on? It was a BMW. Good. A boxer? No, a single. Oh, a single uh, piston? Uh, 250. 250 only? And that was enough? And what, what were you carrying with you? Did you have a tent and sleeping bag and stuff? No, nothing. I just had a change of clothes, my toothbrush. I had a pair of good boots and I was carrying all this in a U.S. surplus backpack. Ah, you didn't even have saddlebags no. or anything. That's a lot to, uh, I mean, over six weeks, that's a lot of strain on your shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> well, the way I had it adjusted was when I was sitting on the bike and uh, you'd be rested, sitting down, resting yeah. on the seat. Yeah. So uh, how did that happen? Were you just like, uh, was it a sudden decision to do that or were you planning for months? Or? No, after the car trip, I thought about it long and hard many, many times, spoke mm -hmm. to a lot of people, <clears throat> sometimes tried to get some companions with me but couldn't make it. And then one day I just told myself, I said, this motorcycle is good enough, it is working fine, and I don't have to depend on anybody to go with me, I'm just going to do it on my own. Mm -hmm. Were you a mechanic at that point? And you were an engineer, your engineering degree was? No, no. it was before the degree. Ah. It was before the degree, so you were still living in Pakistan? Yes. Ah, so you were just in London? We, we just used to go for our vacations, we used to travel. We used to go to England once in a while and, you know. Did you fly or you went on yes. ships? Yeah. we flew. Uh, one of my mother's classmates in her master's program was Dr. Sheikh Abdul Salam, who later on went to Italy and became the director of the Institute of Theoretical Physics in Trieste and was awarded the Nobel Prize. Mm. So around about 57, 58, he was a visiting lecturer at the Imperial College of Science and Technology. So knowing him through my mother, he was able to get me an admission in there. But you know, the rebel that I was, I never attended any classes at the college. I always went back to England from Europe when I knew the money was going to be in the bank because there were no ATMs and no nothing. Mm, mm. You had to go to the bank and yeah. sign papers and whatnot to, you know, get the cash. And I would draw my 40 pounds or whatever it was and come and spend the time in Europe. In uh, Italy? Spain, oh. France, right. Italy, Germany. Oh, you just wandered around wandered instead of around. going to class. Yes. <laughs> so do you think, is, is this genetic 
were you just born to do your own thing? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Because my parents were very kind. They were very liberal. Yeah. I never worked a day in my life till I came to the United States of America. Mm. And even after coming here, despite my father's uh, conditions, he supported me for two years by sending me money over here mm. to support me which is like about $1,200 a month, which was a lot of money, that money at that time. Money, yeah. you know. But he did that. That's great. That's really... so Because that you must have caused a lot of uh, confusion for oh, them. Oh, God. Not just for my own family, but all the relatives and everything. Yeah. I was known as the rebel. I'll bet. Nobody wanted to trust their daughters with me. And, you know. <laughs> An Elvis <laughs> Presley movie. Yeah. But, I mean, was there, could you feel that there was some admiration as well? A lot of admiration for my intelligence. Okay. For my general knowledge. Right. And everybody who ever mentioned my name in a conversation, they said, now there is this one guy, he's so intelligent beyond his years, mm. he's dangerous. Right. Well, that's what I'm thinking. That's why your neighbor... Uh, was helping you out that's you know people recognize that in you and and it's funny because that fuels the the sort of rebelliousness yes as well because right. you're saying people people get me right. some people get me yes. I'm not totally wrong right. <laughs> but yeah it's that's I, that's one of the reasons I don't have children I'm afraid they'd turn out like you oh I am so thankful to God I didn't have any sons <laughs> And my wife says, why? I said, yeah. well, by this time, either I would have killed them or they would have killed me. <laughs> exactly. They're too, too similar. It's yeah. a problem. Yeah. So, I mean, I think when I was traveling, you know, before the Internet and all that, my parents wouldn't hear from me for months at a time. And I was hitchhiking to Alaska or backpacking in India or whatever. And, they, you know, they'd see some bus went off a cliff. The and they, world was so much simpler then. I guess, yeah, it was bigger. You know, when I was going to the Ford Polytechnic Institute for my mechanical degree, mechanical engineering degree, this was like in 65, 66, 67, 68. We would have these Volkswagen vans like mine parked along the Grand Trunk Road mm. and nobody in there. And all of a sudden you would see this whole bunch of blonde looking tall white foreigners trying to pull out all the cannabis from the streams where they were growing and whatnot and collecting it. I imagine in the 60s and 70s, the hippies were everywhere. Okay, one of the things I, I definitely wanted to talk about was your trip to Alaska. Yes, in 1998, I turned 50 years old and started having this midlife crisis withdrawal. Mm. And my wife wanted to know what the problem was. I wasn't working in those days. I had just taken a sabbatical. And so she came home from work and found me kind of despondent sitting on the dining table. And she said, what's the matter? I said, well, the matter is that there are certain things in life that you can only do when you are young. Mm. And she said, what is it that you want to do? I said, well, I can't do it. She said, what? I said, I want to ride my motorcycle to Alaska, but I'm 50 years old. She said, who said you can't do it? I said, I feel that I should have done it when I was younger. She says, you are going. Just start thinking about it. And the next day, she came in from work and she had, she had been to the library. She got all these videos about Alaska and all these books about Alaska. And she had a very interesting publication in it called The Mile Post. 
the Alaska mile post, which gives you the mile per mile condition of the roads, the facilities, and it is published every year. And she said, go through these, see how you feel, familiarize yourself. And then one day she asked me, she said, are you ready to go? I said, yes, I'm ready. She said, I'm not talking physically. Are you ready to go f mentally? Mm. I said, yes. She says, when do you want to leave? I said, well, I'm going to stay for the 4th of July and I'm going to leave on the 5th of July, early in the morning before sunrise. So 5th of July, 1998, at 5 o'clock in the morning, I left El Segundo and I rode all the way straight through to Portland, Oregon, mm. just stopping for gas along mm. the way. Took the 5? Took the five, yes. Oh, that's a long, boring trip yeah. on a motorcycle. A thousand and forty-two miles. Yeah, I've just come down that way. Okay, so there was a friend of mine in Portland. I spent the night with him, two nights there with him, and uh, walked around Portland a little bit and went to the Rose Garden up in the hill. And, mm. and there I kind of planned everything. I decided to do it in long bursts of covering the distance on the days that I was going to be riding and then resting enough mm. to recoup my energy and then moving on. So from there, I left on the third morning, which was, I think, already the eighth by that time. And I stopped in Kirkland, Washington to get a new set of tires. Mm. This is a 1,200cc boxer. 1,100cc. 1,100. Yes, 1,995 1,100cc boxer. With an extra large gas tank. With a six-gallon gas tank and a range of 300 miles. 300 miles, yeah. Are you on an American passport at this point? Or? Yes. Yeah. So getting into Canada wouldn't be a big problem. Been on an American passport since 1979. Ah. And uh, when I was getting the tires changed over there, the service manager was off. So the dealer principal was running the show the back and he asked me where I was going and I said, I'm going to Alaska. And he said, do yourself a favor, get off the freeway, take the side roads. Yeah. And I'm so glad I listened to him. Yeah. And that's what I did. I took all the small roads and I finally wound up in in a town called Kitwanga, which is about a hundred miles south of the Alaska Highway. So and you went, I'm, I'm trying to get see your route here, you went straight? Up to Prince George, and then from Prince George I went west uh, okay. to Haines, Alaska. Haines. Oh, I've been there, Haines. And then all along Lake Kluwani and uh, Salcha, and then I, what is the name of that one town which is the dog mushing capital of the world? Let's see, I remember there's a town called Intercourse I passed through. No. Uh, white. No, anyway, I, I passed through there. White horse. And then I came up on the Alaska Highway about 40 miles west of Lake Watson. And from there, I headed west towards Whitehorse. Whitehorse, right. And it started raining 
five minutes after I got on that freeway, and it rained all the way into Whitehorse. So you were camping along? No. No, you weren't camping there either. No. Where were you Just sleeping? Uh, in motels. Ah. I had my camping equipment with yeah, me. That's but right. You're grown up now. Yeah. You've got money. You can right. afford the motel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's a big difference. So yeah. I remember that I came to this one uh, trucker stop called North Trails Camping. Mm. North Trail Campers and Truckers. They had a restaurant over there. I stopped. It was like at about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I wanted to make it to Haines. But I was tired, I was wet, I was hungry, so I stopped here for uh, lunch. I remember I had a roast beef dip sandwich and a couple <laughs> of glasses of burgundy. And then I uh, got back Do you remember the name of the waitress by any chance? No, but, but she, she was pretty, but she was pregnant. <laughs> uh, oh, man. And then uh, I got on the bike again and headed west towards Haines Junction. Uh -huh. And about an hour out of <coughs> Whitehorse, it just didn't feel right. So I stopped the bike. I put it on the center stand, checked the oil level, checked the tire pressures, make sure that everything was all right. But still something didn't feel right. And then all of a sec sudden I happened to glance at the cockpit and the clock was telling me that it was 10.30 at night according to my biological clock. Oh. And the sun was up there. Right, right. And uh, my That's body was telling me that you were at the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> so Haynes was like two hours away, but Whitehorse Trails Motel was one hour back. So I turned around and I went back to the motel. Mm. And uh, I had dinner there that night and the waitress introduced me to Yukon Jack. Oh, that's bad. That's I liked it. The, my first time I ever got drunk was Yukon Jack. I was 15 or something. So yeah. I had that Yukon Jack with uh, some Alaskan beer, very light lager. Uh, Molson. It, I don't remember what mm. it was, but it was fantastic. I slept well that night. <laughs> Woke up in the middle of the night to check out on my bike outside in the moonlight. <coughs> and I said, well, there it stands, shining white in the moonlight. <coughs> and I am going to get the license plate, White Horse, Y-T-H-O-R-S-E. And that's what I did when I came back. I applied for it. And I've had that license plate on all my GSs ever since. I've sold the bikes, but I kept the plate. Yeah, nice. So now it is on my 2014-1200. So <laughs> <laughs> you're still riding. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. Well, can we just jump back, because uh, I, I, I don't want to, uh, to, f to forget to talk about this. Your wife is an extraordinary woman. I think she is, yes. Because y a man, a 50-year-old man, goes to his wife and says, yeah, I'm feeling bad that I, I feel like dr you know, taking my motorcycle and riding a couple thousand miles. 99 out of 100 wives sure. are going to say, you they know. Will, they will kind of... Uh, Stop you from doing it. Well, especially Discur someone like you. Discourage you. Well, you've done it. You, you know, you've ridden your motorcycle all over. You've been all over the world. You know, you, they're going to say, that's enough. You know, calm Interesting. Down. Interesting interjection over here. Yeah. We got married, arranged marriage, brought her over here. The next day, 
we got up in the morning, the sun was nice and shiny. Instead of the torrential rain of the day before on Thanksgiving, we went into the backyard and she said, what is that little building over there? I said, that is our garage. She said, can I see it? I said, of course you can see it. It belongs to you as much as it belongs to me. So she went in there and she saw these two old BMWs and she said, you ride motorcycles? I said, yes, I ride motorcycles. But let me tell you something right now. You didn't want the cockers in the house. They're out. I said, you didn't want the Siamese in the house. They're out. I said, I promise you no more old girlfriends, no more secret liaisons or anything like that. I am going to be true to you for the rest of my life. If you want me to stop riding motorcycles, let's go to the airport. I'll book you on the first flight back home. Uh, that that's was a, a non-negotiable. Non-negotiables. Yeah. Put the foot down and yeah. that was it. And she she's, was okay with she's it? She's been very, very encouraging. But she's concerned because sometimes I do stupid things like I drink too much. Mm. And I'm riding and I slip somewhere or hurt myself or whatever. And that's why you now she has said the only way you can go on long trips is if I come with you. <laughs> I said that's fine. I've never stopped you. Ah, uh, so she'll ride on the back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you've uh, you've had some accidents over the years on the motorcycle. Nothing serious. Yeah. Just some skids, couple of falls, one broken collarbone mm. in Baja, and uh, this last episode that I had in Death Valley about a year ago where I had a ischemic infraction on the right side of my brain. But it has started healing up so fast ever since I started sta started drinking whiskey again. Everything is falling back in place. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, a lot of these people live into their hundreds. They they take a little shot of whiskey every day and they say it thins no, for the that, blood. For that I use the vodka. Uh -huh. That's your medicinal? Medicinal, yeah, yes. Yeah. When I go home from work over here, Grey Goose Vodka, one shot. Yeah. That is it. Yeah. Or if my wife is having wine, then I will share a glass or two of wine with her. But no more drinking, like coming here and a friend stops and, come on man, pull the glasses out, let's have a shot. You know? yeah, yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> it was crazy. So and in Alaska, you saw, you mentioned the other day, you saw some bears and foxes and things. Bears, tundra fox, tundra swans, uh, the, the, the moose, the moose, the caribou, yeah. and uh, the muskox. We saw muskox, really? I didn't see it, but I smelt it. Uh, yeah. Because in Fairbanks, when I got to Fairbanks, I went to the motorcycle dealer there, and I met this gentleman named Terry. He was from Sarnia in Canada, right across from uh, Port Huron in, in Michigan, working for British Petroleum over there. It was his second trip to Alaska, and uh, he asked me, he said, where are you headed? I said, I'm going to Dead Horse. He said, well, I'm going over there too. I said, do you mind if we tag along together? He said, no, that's great. And he was on a bike? He was on a motor mm -hmm. BMW motorcycle uh -huh. also. Mm -hmm. I have his pictures in the... So we, we got a motel room together that night and bought some more uh, Yukon Jack and beer and it was amber ale. Uh -huh. 
and so we went for dinner to a Mexican restaurant in in Fairbanks and I told uh, the waitress I said this Mexican food better be good because I've come a long way to have it <laughs> she said where are you from I said I'm from Los Angeles yeah right and right yeah, above Mexico yeah and she said get out of here she knows. <laughs> so. you go in the wrong direction if you're looking for Mexican food so you you were in so okay your trip you went up the Alcan Highway then you crossed over at Tok I think was the Tok is what I was talking about right that's from the first Tok, town from Tok to Delta Junction uh-huh. from Delta Junction to Fairbanks then from Fairbanks to Coldfoot so then you went north from Fairbanks I went north from on Fairbanks the, on the, the two right that the sort Dalton of semi Highway semi restricted the Dalton Highway right yep. right and you went all the way up to to Nome no I went to Prudhoe Bay Prudhoe Bay Prudhoe oh Bay. right. Yeah, wow. and and Man. then then I took the. So you went through the Brooks Range. I, I over the Brooks Pass, and wow. the North Slope. What was that like? It was fantastic. The North Slope is just tundra, right? It's yes, flat. But yep. the Brooks Range is amazing. You know what? I met an old French couple there. They were both in their seventies, and they were driving a Honda Civic. <laughs> you know, and yeah, I love that about traveling. The characters. You meet so many different interesting people. Yeah. It is just Yeah. That's the thing I, I always tell people on this podcast about traveling. It's not about I mean, where you're going is interesting, but the best thing about it is that the people who are out there are not normal people. Because normal people just stay home. So there's a filtering. Right. And you just meet one fascinating person after another. In my father's famous words education is good for you but nothing educates a human being like travel yeah that's true and you know I've been traveling with my daughter since they were six months old we used to take them to Pakistan and bring them back and now when they're independent on their own every year they are trying to look into their savings and all that you know because they want to go to Sweden they Mm -hmm. want to go to Italy they want to go to Greece they want to go to South America, you know. Yeah. They love to travel. Do you have any grandkids yet? Nope, but I think it's going to happen next year. Yeah. My wife has been pushing it too much. <laughs> we have three daughters. It's it's pretty good yeah. possibility you're going to have grandkids. And with two of them married. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, then, you know, my aff- affiliation with motorcycles started in 19... 19- 52, 53, when I was four years old. And then after that, my father, when he got promoted to the rank of major, he imported a BMW motorcycle directly from Germany. Mm. And I was so heartbroken when he sold it because I was, I had kind of taken it for granted that it was going to be passed on to me. But he had come back from Germany after spending some time over there and he had purchased a BMW motorcycle. Oh, you're you're touching the mic. Yeah. No. Oh, it's fine. You were just you were moving it, so it's okay. Uh, yeah, okay. So he needed money to pay the custom duties for it, so he sold it. Uh-huh. So I, when I settled down in the United States, I made up my mind that one of the things I was going to do was get that motorcycle back and buy the latest newest BMWs available so that's what I've been doing mm. I bought I bought an old used 
R26 BMW which my father used to have which I did not get and it was given to me by a German friend who had it all in all apart in boxes and I put it all together and it's running pretty good now mm. and the three daughters are fighting for it all three of them want it <laughs> <laughs> it's like Macbeth what did you did you have a specialization when you did the English literature degree was there a particular area you were studying the classics I was very much interested in Thomas Hardy oh really yeah the mayor of Casterbridge yeah far from the madding crowd right. the test of the Dubervilles test of the Dubervilles was my father's favorite book really yes so 19th century romantic mm, right sensibility yeah interesting and uh, and I did a paper on uh, the rural element in Hardy's literature. How he used to describe everything, the sun shining on the trees and the, the leaves turning brown, almost opaque, so that if you look through them you could count the veins in the leaves, mm. stuff like that. And more than Hardy, I loved Russian literature. Tolstoy, oh, yeah. Dostoevsky, yeah. Turgenev, Gogol. Chekhov, did you read much? No. Like the only thing I read about the Chekhov was the Three Sisters. Yeah. But Tolstoy really, really, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. The Brothers Karamazov, mm. I finished it the half an hour before I landed at O'Hare in the United States. I had been reading it for three months, uh. 1,200 pages. Penguin edition, I remember. Oh my God. Was Dostoevsky fucked up or <laughs> <laughs> did he just write like that? I'm, I mean, yeah. such a complex mind, you know. Yeah. Notes from underground. Right. And uh, my mother's favorite book was Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Mm. Anna Karenina. Have you ever read uh, Milan Kundera? Nope. He wrote a book called The Unbearable Lightness of Being. It's one of my favorite novels. And uh, it's very interesting. Okay, you have to give me that name again, the, the author's name? Uh, Kundera, K-U-N-D-E-R. I can, I can tell you after we finish. Okay. It's, it's a beautiful book about... Um, the... The unbearable lightness, lightness of, of, of being. Of being, yeah. I saw Christian Stewart in a movie or something like that. Well, there's a movie starring Daniel Day-Lewis. Danny Day-Lewis? Yeah. Oh, my God. He's, he's my hero. Great actor. Huh? Oh, my God. Amazing yes. actor, yeah. yeah. There is nothing that even comes close to him in the American side. Yeah. He is simply amazing. Yeah. My left foot. Oh, it's amazing. My beautiful film. laundrette. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a very interesting film. <laughs> yeah. He goes from, I mean, his roles are just incredible. My Beautiful Laundrette, he's gay. Yes. And then he was in uh, My Left Foot, he's uh, yes. in, incapacitated. And uh, the. Su uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday or something like that. Yeah. About the, the Irish The Revolution. Irish prison. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, incredible. And well, and then There Will Be Blood. Have you there, seen that? There Will Be Blood. Yeah, and yeah. the other one about oil. That is There Will Be Blood, right? That's the oil guy. No, there were two of them, I think. 
And there's the New York uh, Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York. Season. Oh my God, he's so scary. <laughs> so scary. But charismatic and funny at yes. the same time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, listen, I, I have to run. I have people waiting for me at. at but uh, well, we can do a volume two if you like. I something. would love to. Yeah. <laughs> Next time I'm in I'm in L.A. in May. I think. I, I would like a copy of this so that I can remember something about my past. <laughs> 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 well, like I said, I there. Are, you're the kind of guy that uh, I know if I keep asking you questions, I'm going to strike gold, you know, over and over again. Okay, let's do so it. I want to rediscover myself. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Some of the things I wanted to put in there was the lessons that my father taught me. Uh, once a month, there would be a special Sunday where we would go on his BMW on a trip out of town and come back. Just the two of you. Just the two of us. Yeah. and and mom would pack us a picnic lunch, or we would go into a certain military officer's mess or a regiment where it was uh, it was a common uh, thing at that time that if you have a visiting officer from another regiment or something, you treat them to a, a meal, you know, mm. so that would happen. And there were certain conditions that he laid on me, which were very disciplinary, but well worth it. Well, it's clear. There is only one way of doing a thing, and that is the right way. Yeah. Because if you do it wrong, 90% of the time you wind up doing it again, so that takes more time. Right. And it's a waste of time. Right. Yeah. There's no arguing with that. Punctuality. Yeah, it's clear that your parents were extraordinary people. Now that I've lost them, I realize that more. That's but the they would be works. very proud of the way I brought my daughters up. Yeah. Well, the fact that you you know that is a great gift from them. It's a great gift to be so rebellious as you were and yet always know that they admired you. Thank you. I think so. Yeah. I My throat is so dry, I need to... This is where the conversation ended. Lodi got up and unclipped his microphone and uh, went to get some water. But I think he was a little overwhelmed by the memories of his parents and uh, looking back at his life in such a global sort of way, which um, just goes to reinforce what a sincere and beautiful man he is. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Uh, it's one of the greatest treats in life to stumble upon someone who opens their heart to you and shares their experiences and what they've learned. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you uh, happen to be in Venice and in need of a very honest auto mechanic, check out Lodi at RPM Auto on Lincoln Boulevard. That's not an advertisement, just a word of advice.